haven't had the chance to meet yet. I'm part of the team here, and it's wonderful to have you with us today. And let me just again say happy Father's Day to all the dads that are with us. We love you. We appreciate you. We're thankful for you. And we know that you play an incredibly important role, not just in the lives of your families, but in our society as well. So thank you for all that you do. I haven't yet uh, seen my little ones today. We had a a wedding last night, and so they had a a sleepover, so I'm looking forward to some cuddles um, after the service today. But let me begin by sharing with you about a difficult decision that I had to make about 10 or so years ago. I had to decide if I wanted to continue my career as an accountant, to keep going on that path that I'd studied for and worked towards, or whether I had to do, uh, take a, a drastically different direction. Now, maybe you're thinking, that doesn't sound like a difficult decision. Why would you want to be an accountant? <laughs> Apologies to all of our accountants who are here. I lasted three years, but then I did take a drastically different direction. I had to decide, do I want to pursue pastoral ministry? Do I want to work in the church? Do I want to study theology? And it was a difficult decision. And in the midst of that decision, I wanted to know, what does God want for me? What is God's will for my life? Maybe you've experienced something similar. You've had a decision to make, what to study, where to live, who to marry, what job to take, when to retire. And you wanted to know, what does God want for me? What is God's will for my life? Now, if you've experienced that, it is totally understandable. We all want to know that we're going in the right direction. We all want to know that we are following the path that God has for us. And so the question is, how do we know? How do we discern God's will? How do we know what is pleasing to God? Well, the title of today's sermon is How to Please God which is a pretty ambitious title, isn't it? But this is essentially what this passage is all about that we're looking at in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. It's about how to live a life that is pleasing to God. Here's what Paul, the author of this letter to the Thessalonians, says in verse 1 of chapter 4. He says, As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. Remember Paul had visited the city of Thessalonica. He preached the gospel. This church was born. He had to run away, uh, get out of there after a few weeks. And now he's writing this letter to the church at Thessalonica. Now so far in the letter, Paul has been encouraging this young church. He's been saying to them, well done. I've heard about your love and your faithfulness. I love you and I'm praying for you. He's described his ministry among them. But today in chapter 4, Paul transitions and he begins to address the Thessalonians. He begins to instruct them and give them guidance. And here today, he tells them how to live in a way that is pleasing to God. Now, I wonder what you think it might look like to please God. What is pleasing to God? I wonder if you even think that this is a good thing to aim for. Maybe you're not a Christian and you're, you're not so sure about this. 
maybe you're thinking, well, shouldn't you live to please yourself? Shouldn't you decide what's best for yourself? Shouldn't you decide the way that you want to live? Let's be honest, this is the the cultural air that we breathe. You do you. Be true to yourself. Look out for number one. Do whatever makes you happy. In other words, please yourself. But the Bible comes along and it tells us something very different. It says the good life is not found in living to please ourselves, but it's actually found in living to please God. And if you're a Christian, I I imagine that you're thinking to yourself, yes, this is what I want. I want to please God. Not to earn his love, not to kind of force my way into his good books, but actually in response to his great love for me. Actually in response to his gracious adoption into his family. In fact, it's Father's Day, so let's think about it this way for a moment. I mean, if you have or had a good dad, dad who loved you, dad who cared for you, who guided you, who helped you, who disciplined you, then I'm certain that you probably wanted to please your dad, to generally do what he says, to make him happy. Not because you were scared of him, or not because you're worried he's going to kick you out of the family, but because you knew that he loves you, and you love him. So you wanted to please your dad. Well, it's a very similar dynamic in the Christian life. We want to please God, not to earn his love, but in response to his great love. You know, when we are adopted into God's family through the finished work of Christ, our response is not whatever. Great, now I can just do whatever I want to do. No, our response is to say, thank you, Father. I want to now live for you, and I want to please you. And this explains why the New Testament, I don't know if you've noticed this, but if you read through the New Testament, it often talks about pleasing God. Let me give you an example from Ephesians chapter 5, another letter that the Apostle Paul wrote. This is what he says. He says, For you were once darkness, which is a very vivid description, isn't it? But now you are light in the Lord, in Christ. Live as children of light, verse 10, and find out what pleases the Lord. Now, I love that because it says, find out what pleases the Lord. Paul doesn't say, here's a list of 101 things that you must do if you want to be pleasing to God. No, he says, find out. In other words, look at your life. Think about your life, every area of your life. And then ask yourselves, what would it mean for me to please God in this area? The way that I drive. The way that I talk. The way that I engage on social media what I do with my money, what I do with my spare time, what would it look like for me to please God in these areas? We've been called as God's redeemed, loved children to live a life that is pleasing to him. And this is what Paul writes about today in this chapter in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Now, Paul actually addresses and writes about two very specific issues, two very important issues. Now, remember, this was a young church. 
They hadn't spent a lot of time with Paul. They were under pressure from those around them. They didn't have the internet and podcasts and books to find out what it means to follow Jesus. They needed help. They needed guidance. They needed instruction. And so Paul writes to them about two very practical, very important areas. He gives them guidance in the matters of sex and work. Sex and making money. Now, these are very, very important areas. But the question is, why would Paul write about these two specific areas? As we've mentioned, pleasing God is is in every area, you know, it's a thing we do in every area of life. So why would Paul write about these two areas in particular to the Thessalonians? Well, the fact of the matter is the Thessalonians lived in a culture, in a society that had very different views on sex and making money. In fact, in one of the earliest writings we have after the Bible, it's called the Letter to Diognetus, there's a very interesting, very phrase in there. It basically says about Christians, we share our table with all, but not our bed with all. Now, that's noteworthy because that attitude was totally opposite to the culture in that day. I mean, the Greeks and the Romans in that society, they did not share their table. They did not share their resources, their money. They held on to their money. Their money was sacred. But for them in that day, sex was the opposite. It was mundane. It was freely available. It was freely given. In fact, it was common in that day for men to be sleeping with four or five different women at the same time. They had their wife. They had their mistress. They had servants that they would sleep with. And then on top of that, they would often visit prostitutes. Money was sacred, but... Sex was shared. For the Christians, though, it was the opposite. I mean, for Christians, money was mundane. It was to be shared. It was to be given away. The early Christians were famous for their generosity. But when it came to sex, it was different. Sex was sacred. It was to be guarded. It was to be protected. It wasn't for everyone. It was for only one other person. And so they would share their money, but not their bed. And Paul knew that this would put them in direct opposition with those around them. Paul knew that these baby Christians, these young converts, they would be mocked for their attitude towards sex and money. And so he writes to them and he says, this is not going to make you popular, but this is what is pleasing to God. And my question is, what about us? What are the dominant views of of sex and making money around us? Well, Tim Keller, a pastor from the States, he points out that though Western culture likes to believe that it's progressive and it's liberated, in many ways it's actually just going back to the way of the Roman Empire, especially in its views around sex and money. I mean, all of the stats suggest that the average Aussie today is giving less. There was a study done in uh, 2018, 2019, which, you know, it's pre-COVID and so it seems like such a long time ago, but I think the, the stats are still similar today. According to this study, only 27% of the Australian population donated any amount of money. And the average Aussie gave, according to this study, 0.5% of their income. For many people in our country, money is sacred. And yet at the same time, for the average Aussie, sex is relatively mundane. It's it's 
freely available, it's a few clicks away, it's the subject of reality TV shows. And so we live in a culture that's not unlike the Thessalonians. And so we need to hear what God has to say to us about these two very important areas of life. We don't want to be forced into the mold of our culture. We want to live lives that are pleasing to God. So let's dig in to these two areas. And the first thing Paul says to the Thessalonians and to us, a life that is pleasing to God is to avoid sexual immorality. Now, I read this passage out with my growth group on Monday night. Uh, I wanted to get their feedback and their comments and questions to help me in my sermon preparation. I often like to use them as guinea pigs. And they offered a few comments and a few thoughts, but no one said anything about this section on sex. And eventually I said, no one said anything about the section on sex. You know, we got young adults and young marrieds, and I was expecting, you know, some questions and comments. And eventually one of the, the growth group members piped up and said, well, I guess it's just pretty clear. And I think they're right in a way. It is fairly clear what Paul is saying here. I mean, let's pick it up in verse 3. This is what Paul says. It is God's will. Now, if you've ever wondered what is God's will for your life, what does God want me to be doing? Here it is. Your long wait is over. It's right here. It's in the Bible. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. And we all cheered and went, yay. Now, it doesn't sound very exciting, does it? It's a big word, but it essentially means to be made holy, to be holified. Now, this might not sound very exciting, but this is beautiful and profound. See, God is committed to your transformation. God wants you to become holy, to reflect his character, to enjoy his goodness. That's a beautiful vision for your life. Now, what does that look like in practice? Well, Paul goes on. He says, it is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sex. Now that I've got your attention again, that's not what he says, is it? You know, the Bible actually has an overwhelmingly positive attitude towards sex. Nowhere in the Bible does it say avoid sex. There's a whole book of the Bible devoted to the goodness of sex. Never once does the Bible say that sex is dirty or disgusting. It's a good gift from a good God. But at the same time, the Bible is honest about the power of sex. It has great power to unite, to build up, to give honor, but also great power to destroy, to degrade, to tear down. In fact, this is exactly what Paul points out in verse 6. He says, in this matter, in this arena of sexuality, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins as we told you and warned you before. God takes sex very seriously because sex is very often used and misused and people very precious to God are mistreated. You see, when there is a casual attitude towards sex, the, the consequences can really be quite devastating. I mean, adultery leaves a, a trail of destruction and broken relationships. It's not the unforgivable sin, but it is a painful sin. Pornography silently and insidiously damages relationships. 
It objectifies precious people made in God's image and it funds an industry that's built on exploitation and slavery. And this is why the commands of Scripture, they're not restrictive but dignifying. This is why God's word puts boundaries around sex. Not because sex is so bad, but because it's so good. I mean, fire in a fireplace is good. It gives heat and warmth. But fire outside a fireplace is often destructive. And so Paul says, writes to the Thessalonians and to us, it is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. Now, the word sexual immorality is the Greek word porneia. It's a very broad, very general term that means any misuse of sex, any kind of sexual activity outside the the safety, the intimacy of the covenant of marriage. And Paul says we are to avoid it. We're we're to not go near it. We're to flee from it. And instead, he says in verse 4, each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable not in passionate lust like the pagans, those who don't know God, as he says there, who do not know God. And so the antidote to sexual immorality, it is relationship with God. Not just to know about God, but to know God relationally, deeply, intimately. And so if you're struggling with sexual sin, the solution, firstly, fundamentally, it's not practical measures. Now, they're important, they're necessary, they're needed. You know, we sh- you should use accountability software, limit our access to apps, know times, dates, places where we might be vulnerable, and on and on. But firstly and fundamentally, we need to cultivate and foster our relationship with God. Practice repentance. Get to know Him, what He's like. Read His Word, remember His grace. Meditate on God's goodness and God's holiness. And that will begin to produce in us the fruit of self-control, which is what Paul calls for there in verse 4. Now, self-control is not white-knuckled willpower on our own. Remember, self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. It's a work of God's Spirit in our lives. And I think this is why Paul reminds us in verse 8 that God gives us His Holy Spirit. We're not alone in the struggle, and this is important for us because, let's be honest, the struggle is not always easy. In fact, if we get back to what that person in my growth group said at the, at the start, they said that what you know, Paul says here is pretty clear, they're right, but that doesn't mean that it's always easy. In fact, the truth is all of us are sexual sinners. And if you doubt that to be true, remember what Jesus said about this issue. He internalized it. He said, it's not just a matter of what we do, it's even a matter of what we think. And so we all need help and we all need hope. And the good news is that this is exactly what God gives us. The help he gives us is the endless power of his spirit. And the hope he gives us is the finished work of his son. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins... If we don't pretend that God doesn't know, that God doesn't see, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And so any failure in this area doesn't need to be the last word in your life. If you'll come to Jesus and keep coming to Jesus, there'll be cleansing 
and forgiveness for you. In fact, I recently finished a a book by a pastor named Ray Ortland. It's called The Death of Porn. And here's what he writes in the introduction. He says, here's all you need to know about me. I'm a Christian pastor. I love my wife. I'm not looking at porn. I'm a sexual sinner. I wish that last one weren't true. But there's a brothel in the neighborhood of my mind. And I've wandered in there a time or two. It's a big part of why I'm thankful for the grace of Jesus. Never once has a stop off at that fantasy land made my life better. And never once has Jesus refused to take me back and clean me up. And that right there summarizes what the Bible teaches about sexuality. Sexual sin will never make our life better. It's a lie. And so we need to avoid it, do what we can to flee from it. Sex is not casual, it's serious, and we need to treat it that way. It will never make our lives better, and yet Jesus will never refuse to take us back. Your sin is not stronger than God's grace. And your struggle is not stronger than God's spirit. We have help and we have hope. So the first thing Paul says to us in this passage, the way we live a life that's pleasing to God is to avoid sexual immorality. And then he moves on and he gives us another way and it's a heck of a gear change. And he says the second way that we live a life that's pleasing to God is to lead a quiet life. Now, I mentioned that I read this passage to my growth group. They didn't ask anything about the sex uh, section, but they did ask, what does it mean to lead a quiet life? And that's a good question, because what does it mean? I mean, Paul in verse 9 to 10 encourages the Thessalonians to love one another. He said, you're already doing this. Keep it up. Great job. And then he goes on and he adds in verse 11, and make it your ambition, your goal to lead a quiet life life. This is amazing. I mean, what's your ambition in life? Is it this? Let's be honest. A lot of churches and church leaders don't talk about this. I've, I've seen books and heard sermon series, how to change the world, how to make a difference. I've never seen a sermon series, how to lead a quiet life. I've been to a lot of year 12 valedictory speeches, and I've never heard a valedictorian get up and say, my fellow graduates, Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. A lot of Dr. Seuss quotes, but never that. What does it mean to lead a quiet life? Let me tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean to lead a boring life. Jesus Christ was not boring. He was radiant. He was magnificent. He was extraordinary. And to follow Jesus will not be a boring life. It will actually lead you into a beautiful life, a compelling life, a contented life. And this is the point of this phrase. You see, Paul's essentially saying to the Thessalonians, don't be a scandalous person. Don't always be the one rocking the boat, making a fuss. Don't be obnoxious. Don't be difficult. You know, we don't bring any credit to the cause of Christ by being difficult people always having to have our say, always having to be right, speaking condescendingly. No, to lead a quiet life means to be content, to be humble, and to be peaceable. 
That's what Paul goes on to say in verse 11. He says, I love that this is in the Bible. You should mind your own business. Maybe it's my new life first. Don't be a gossip. Don't be a busybody. Don't be a meddler. Don't interfere in other people's lives when they haven't invited you to. And then he goes on and he says, and work with your hands, just as we told you. Now, why would Paul need to remind the Thessalonians to work? It's fairly obvious, isn't it? If if you want to eat, you've got to work. Well, it seems that they had become confused about the return of Jesus. They'd heard that Jesus was coming back, but they thought it was happening tonight, tomorrow. So they quit their jobs, they stopped working, and it seems that they had a whole lot more time on their hands. They started to meddle. They started to spend too much time on Facebook. They started to to just be disruptive. And Paul's saying, hey, 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 take it down a notch. Lead a quiet life, stop meddling, and get back to work so that you can support your family and others. Now, it's worth pointing out that Paul here is not condemning unemployment as such. When you want to work, but you can't find work. Paul is rather condemning idleness, laziness, busybodiness, when there's work available, but but you don't want it. The way we live a life that's pleasing to God is we live a life that is quiet, non-interfering, and hardworking. Now, why? What's what's the point of this? Look at what Paul says, verse 12. This This is really quite amazing to me. So that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders. Paul says, you will win the respect of outsiders. You will draw others to Jesus. Not, you know, these people, they think you're strange, they don't agree with you, they don't believe what you do, but you will win their respect. Not by being really clever. Not by being really eloquent. Not even by the quality of your ability to explain the gospel. But actually by the quality of your daily life. The way that you talk. The way that you work. The way that you engage with others. This is what will win the respect of outsiders. Now, does this mean we never talk about Jesus? Of course not. But it might mean that we earn the right to talk about Jesus by showing others the difference that Jesus makes. Now, I hope you find this both convicting and encouraging. It's convicting because your life matters. The way you go to work and and work your job matters. Not just to your boss, but to Jesus. The way you talk matters. But it's encouraging because God can use even your ordinary daily life to make a difference. You know, Sam Chan is an Australian evangelist. He's written a book called How to Talk About Jesus Without Being That Guy. You know, we've met that guy. He tells a story in there about his wife, Steph, who was at a a busy shopping center. She had their three young boys. They were hungry. They were irritable after a long day at school. But she saw this young Asian lady who was holding a baby looking very distressed. And so Steph went over to her, introduced herself, found out her name was Jenna, and asked if she was okay. And Jenna said, no, I've I've lost my elderly mother. And I can't find where she is. She doesn't speak English. She's got the the baby bag with my purse, with my phone, with food for the baby. And I just don't know where she is. And so Steph started to help Jenna look for her mother. They walked around and around the shops. They reached out to the police. They spent hours searching before they eventually found Jenna's mother. 
And Jenna was thanking Steph profusely and, and Steph just sensed a, a nudge from God and just reached out to Jenna and, and invited her to their church play group. And so Jenna came along and then uh, soon after that, Jenna and her husband started coming along to church. And her husband, Nelson, uh, when he saw all of the families kind of worshiping God, he said to Jenna, whatever these people believe, we have to believe the same thing. And Sam writes, he says, can you see what happened? At least three couples are now checking out Jesus just because my wife stopped to help Jenna at a shopping mall. This wasn't what Steph had in mind at the time. She was just going out of her way to help a distressed shopper. She was being Jesus to the other woman. But that one act triggered a sequence of events that resulted in evangelism. The way we live matters to God and it will be used by God for the good of others. So if we get back to our questions from the start, how do we please God? How do we live a life that is pleasing to God? The answer, at least according to this passage, is avoid sexual immorality. Live a life of purity and holiness and lead a quiet life. Be humble, be content, and be hardworking. This is a life that's pleasing to God and this is a life that will win the respect of outsiders. It will be weird to them, but also winsome. It will be strange, but also strangely compelling. And so let's get after it together. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it both binds us up, comforts us, encourages us, and it also, Lord, convicts and corrects and instructs us. And Lord, where your word has pressed on us today, Help us to respond in repentance and faith. Help us to confess where we need to confess and to receive your grace and your mercy and your cleansing. Lord, no one has sinned too far or gone too far to be beyond your reach. Our sin is not stronger than your grace and so this morning we want to turn to you and we want to ask that you would fill us afresh with your spirit and send us out to be people that live lives that are strange, but also strangely compelling. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.